Well, we've got a lot to cover, so, as we should always do, but particularly being reminded, let's start with prayer. Lord, we do thank you for your word. We would be so lost without your initiative in revealing yourself to us and what is uh, your purpose for us. And so we just counted a privilege to be able to gather together as those who have new hearts because of your doing and who desire to walk after you, uh, to be able to gather together and look together at your word. And we pray that your spirit would illuminate our minds and that we would just grow to better understand uh, the books of Numbers and Deuteronomy. Uh, not that we simply walk away with um, knowledge, but that we become better students of your word, that um, in, in subsequent years as we continue to read your word, that we would read it with more understanding because of the orientation that this evening provides us. Uh, we pray, Lord, that you would be glorified as we uh, study your word, for the end of glorifying you in our actions. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Bobby, would you mind grabbing the door? Thank you. Oh, sorry, I forgot. <laughs> All right, numbers. So we're going to try to get through numbers and Deuteronomy. But fortunately, when I laid our, uh, our objectives for this class at the beginning, we were pretty modest. I just said I wanted you guys to get the, the purpose and structure of each of the books, and then also to understand kind of the opening scene of the Bible storyline, right? So I think we can do that. We can get that done for Numbers and Deuteronomy. We should make sure we don't get too lost in the details, which can be difficult, but that's okay. All right, so... Jumping into numbers, you guys should have a handout there. Really briefly, reviewing some of the significant points in Genesis through Leviticus. Those books have detailed the promises to Abraham and their progress toward fulfillment. But at the end of Leviticus, Israel's still not in the land. And you'll remember, that's kind of where Exodus began. Exodus began with the Lord delivering them, bringing them out of Egypt for the purpose of bringing them into the land he had promised them. We've got all the way through the rest of Exodus and now all the way through Leviticus, and we're still not there, still not to the promised land. The book of Numbers is primarily about the journey from Mount Sinai to the promised land, and in this way it continues the narrative of Exodus, which came to a standstill in Exodus 18. So remember, after they leave... Egypt, they initially travel to Mount Sinai, but then at the end of chapter 18, the movement comes to a standstill because beginning in chapter 19, God begins to create the covenant, begins to give them instructions um, within the covenant, instructions for the tabernacle, they set up the tabernacle, and then really Leviticus is just all instructions. There's hardly, there's not hardly any narrative there. It's just reporting these instructions the Lord gave them to be able to maintain his presence in the camp, in their midst. And so Numbers is going to kind of pick up now and take us further, starting to make some more progress now from Mount Sinai to the Promised Land. So the situation of the book of Numbers. Moses composed Numbers for Israel on the plains of Moab, Moab beside the Jordan River, shortly before his death. I should have included a map for you, but my attempts to draw maps will not be helpful. You'll just, yeah, that won't be helpful. 
Um, it's just, think of where the modern-day country of Jordan is, Transjordan, east of the, the Jordan River, east of the Dead Sea. That's kind of where the plains of Moab are, where they are. Because you guys remember, they crossed the Jordan River under Joshua's leadership and initially go to Jericho. So that's where they are on that side. Purpose. Purpose of the book of Numbers. To prepare Israel for entering the land by providing both motivation to trust the Lord to fight for them and instructions for traveling to and living in the land. So you can see here there's this interesting mixture in the book of stories, narrative, about them traveling, and then also just instructions, more instructions for them about what they need to do while they live in the land. Combination there, kind of interwoven. Next for the structure of the book of Numbers, I've broken it down to three parts. First, there's preparations for traveling to the promised land in chapters 1 through 10. Preparations for traveling to the promised land. Second, obstacles to entering the promised land in chapters 11 through 25. Obstacles to entering the promised land. And thirdly, preparations for entering the promised land. Preparations for entering the promised land. Chapters 26 to 36. So the book is essentially structured around two censuses. Censuses. Census is a hard word to say in the plural. Yeah, not sensi, though. <laughs> Two censuses, one in chapter 1, one in chapter 26, and they're surveying, they're taking a census of two different generations. The first one is of the generation that came out of the Exodus, just about a year after the, they came across the Red Sea, and the second one, 40 years later, after the whole first generation had died. But those are kind of two crucial points in the book structuring it. But then even within that, chapters 1 to 25, that first section, are clearly divided uh, between chapters 10 and 11, where the narrative is going to take a drastic change in direction. Notice going from preparations to now obstacles, and we'll see that immediately in chapter 11, verse 1. And the book starts around the time the tabernacle was erected. So you remember that the instructions were given for the tabernacle, and it's just a little bit over a year after the exodus, that they actually set up the tabernacle, and the Lord comes to dwell in the tabernacle. And then the first ten chapters of the book of Numbers are focused on the first two months of that second year. So first ten chapters are focused on the first two months of that second year. So a lot is packed into a short bit of time. And then also on the other end of the book... Um, let me see... Yes, so chapters 26 to 36 take place in the 40th year after the Exodus. So first 10 chapters, first two months, and then the last 10 chapters, I guess really 11 chapters, from 26 to 36 in the 40th year after the Exodus. But then everything in between, chapters 11 through 25, cover 38 years in the middle. Just kind of high-level orienting you to the way the book unfolds. And as I mentioned, the book does contain some instructions, but much of it is given to narrative about the travel from Sinai to the edge of the promised land and the urgent need for Israel to trust the Lord to fulfill his promise to give them the land, even though the obstacles to that seem insurmountable. So, jumping into the first section, preparations for traveling to the promised land. 
Much of these first ten chapters are focused on preparations for traveling to the promised land, though um, some of the instructions here are just general. So they can apply equally to Israel, whether traveling to the promised land, living in the promised land, living in the wilderness. They're somewhat generic, but a lot of them are aimed at the process of moving to the promised land. So beginning in chapter 1, that's where you find the census, and you'll see it kind of culminates in verse 46 of chapter 1 with the total number of men, 603,550, and then goes on to explain that the Levites were left out of this because this census is has a very, what can I say, martial or militaristic overtone. It's about the fighting men. You don't, they don't... Um, count the women, they don't count the young men, they don't count the old men, they're counting the people who can fight, because they're going to have to go in and fight the current inhabitants of the promised land to take it and to possess it. And the priests are exempted because they've got to give their time to caring for the Levitical system, for the, the, the tabernacle, the sacrifices, all of that. And then also much of the instruction here relates to the responsibilities of the priests. Um, part of it related to them moving in toward the promised land. So this is kind of the first time they're going to start moving. So how, how do the priests, the Levites, move all of this stuff now? So certain tribes have to contribute things like carts to be able to move some things. They also need the poles to be able to move other things. So it's just giving all the instructions for how that kind of stuff should be done. And now, if you've got your Bibles open, go ahead and flip to chapter 10. And all of these preparations for traveling to the promised land kind of come to this apex. They culminate in chapter 10 with Israel setting out from Sinai to journey to the promised land. And the chapter concludes with Moses expressing confidence in the Lord's promise to give to Israel the land of Canaan. So notice the very end of chapter 10, verse 35. Then it came about when the ark set out that Moses said, Rise up, O Lord, and let your enemies be scattered, and let those who hate you flee before you. So there's just this great anticipation, great excitement as chapter 10 comes to a close about Israel taking possession of the land um, and conquering its inhabitants. After all, so much of the biblical storyline to this point has been oriented in this direction, hasn't it? All the way back to chapter 3 of Genesis, when they were exiled from the garden, the question has been, how will God restore his relational presence among man, and how will he reconcile himself to them? And we've seen how that's, everything's been working in that direction. And while just simply entering the promised land doesn't fully restore that, it is the next significant thing kind of on the horizon. So considering that we're now in the fourth book, kind of looking forward, looking to this in this direction, this is a significant point we reach. So before we move into the next section, let me just summarize for you where we find ourselves here after this first section. Uh, so for this first section, preparations for traveling to the promised land, my summary is to prepare Israel for entering the land by providing both motivation to trust the Lord, sorry, that first part is uh, actually the general purpose. Um, so just jump down to that kind of second paragraph under summary, where it says this section, this section, chapters 1 through 10, provides Israel with important instructions for traveling to and living in the land. Now, moving on to the second section, where things get interesting. 
chapters 11 through 25, obstacles to entering the promised land. So this shift from chapter 10 to chapter 11 is quite significant in that you know, there was this great anticipation at the end of chapter 10 about entering the promised land, the Lord giving them victory, um, the long-anticipated fulfillment of old promises, which were so central to the Lord's redemptive plan, not only for Israel, but for the whole earth, it seemed to be kind of somewhat on the cusp of some significant fulfillment, and then abruptly it all crashes in chapter 11, verse 1, with Israel complaining, which provokes the Lord's wrath. So look at chapter 11, verse 1. Now, the people became like those who complain of adversity in the hearing of the Lord, and when the Lord heard it, his anger was kindled, and the fire of the Lord burned among them and consumed some of the outskirts of the camp. And it continues on in the next two chapters, or these chapters, 11 and 12, continue to basically recount the murmuring, complaining, grumbling of the people, and the Lord's wrath against them because of that. And then we come to chapters, you're probably all familiar with, chapters 13 and 14, when all of this grumbling and complaining and failure to trust the Lord, again, comes to a, a significant point. At the beginning of chapter 13, Israel finds itself on the southern edge of the promised land. What's often called like the, the Negev. They're right there at the southern edge, ready to go in. And so they first say, well, let's send 12 spies in to, to explore this land and to see what's going on there. And what we find first at the end of chapter 13 as they return is that they say the land is a wonderful land. Basically, it's everything the Lord had promised to us. Look at chapter 13, verse 23. Then they came to the valley of Eshcol and from there cut down a branch with a single cluster of grapes, and they carried that single cluster of grapes on a pole between two men, some of the pomegranates and with some of the pomegranates and figs. So obviously a big cluster of grapes if you're carrying it on a pole between two men. Then jump down to verse 27, chapter 13. Thus they told him and said, this is the spies reporting back, we went in to the land where you sent us, and it certainly does flow with milk and honey. And this, apparently pointing to you know the grapes, this is its fruit. Nevertheless, so now they go on and they're going to to give more of their report, which is now being fueled by unbelief. Yes, the Lord's given us everything they pro he promised, but there's some problems. Verse 28, nevertheless the people who live in the land are strong, and the cities are fortified and very large. And moreover, we saw the descendants of Anak, or Anak, there, which would be like giants. Amalek is living in the land of the Negev, and the Hittites, and the Jebusites, and the Amorites are living in the hill country, and the Canaanites are living by the sea and by the edge of the Jordan. So now they're saying there's problems. This isn't going to be quite so easy as we had thought. And faced with the choice of trusting the Lord to give them the land as he had promised, or disobeying an unbelief, the majority of the spies prevail in convincing the people to disobey an unbelief. So notice uh, chapter 13, verse 30. Then Caleb quieted the people before Moses and said, We should by all means go up and take possession of it, for we will surely overcome it. There's faith in the Lord's promises. 
But the men who had gone up with him said, We are not able to go up against the people, for they are too strong for us. So those unbelieving spies gave out to the sons of Israel a bad report of the land which they had spied out, saying, The land through which we have gone in spying it out is a land that devours its inhabitants, and all the people whom we saw in it are men of great size. Uh, there, are, there we saw also the Nephilim, the sons of Anak, who are part of the Nephilim, and we became like grasshoppers in our own sight, and so we were in their sight. So just as trusting obedience was absolutely essential to the arrangement in the garden for Adam and Eve to dwell in the Lord's relational presence, and the tree of life was there to kind of flush out, to expose their unwillingness to trust the Lord in that way, um, even so, it is essential to Israel entering the promised land, a new garden, that they trust the Lord, that with trust in his promises, they obey and not give in to what seems right in their own eyes, but say, no, this is what the Lord has said is good and right. We will simply obey because we can trust what he says. And this time, it's not a tree of life. It's giants and cities with big walls that is there to flush out to the unbelief, the insistence upon deciding what is good and appropriate for myself. And Israel was given a command, and that's all that matters. They need to trust the Lord to decide what is right and appropriate, but they decide they're going to judge for themselves. That phrase we've used to talk about the tree of knowledge previously. They decide that they're going to insist upon their own epistemic autonomy, their own autonomy to judge for themselves what's true. Note also the parallels with Genesis. In Genesis, God repeatedly threatened his own promises. Think about this. because we, we had to move quickly through the end of Genesis. But God promises to Abraham a multitude of descendants. And Sarah is barren. God promises, then that promise gets passed on to Isaac. Isaac takes Rebekah. And the narrative moves across it pretty quickly. But Rebekah also is barren for something like 20 years while Isaac's praying for her till finally she bears a child. So the Lord's the, Lord's the one who opens and closes the womb. And that's not just a, a category from elsewhere in the Bible that I'm bringing there. Genesis itself mentions that, that the Lord's the one who's doing that. And yet the Lord gives these promises and yet seems to thwart those promises. Why? Because he wants his people to trust him. There's, there's no more dramatic example of that in the book of Genesis than after all of those years when Sarah finally has a child, what does the Lord say? Kill him. Well, how is this all going to work? Like, there's nothing that, that doesn't make sense at all to our own rationality. You can't make sense of that. But Abraham wasn't supposed to. He was supposed to trust the Lord. And the Lord takes care of things. So we see these parallels with Genesis. And I had noted that the theme in Genesis was drawn out by Moses. Keep in mind, Moses is writing all of this stuff in Genesis for these people in the wilderness between the Exodus, between Egypt, and between entering the Promised Land. And he's drawing these themes out intentionally for the sake of his contemporaries, the people around him, the people in the wilderness, because they needed to trust the Lord to give them the land in the face of the threats to his promise. And in this section, chapters 13 and 14, we see the first generation's failure to trust and obey, the very thing Moses was trying to avoid by recounting all of this from Genesis. And then the rest of chapter 14 recounts how the Lord, because of his character and because of his promises to Abraham, graciously forgives the people 
and continues with them. He does say, though, that Israel must first wander in the wilderness for 40 years until everyone over the age of 20 or 20 or older dies in the wilderness. But the Lord will not give up his plan that he promised to Abraham. He's insisting on that. He's sticking with it. He's going to continue that with the next generation. And, of course, you guys are familiar that Caleb and Joshua are spared from that first generation because they were the two faithful spies who trusted the Lord. And throughout the rest of this section, that is, through the end of chapter 25, Israel continues with grumbling. There's more and more instances of this, which is simply a refusal to trust the Lord. You know, they don't have water. And rather than trusting the Lord to give them water, they're going to complain about it. And the section ends in chapter 25 with Israel joining the Midianites in worshiping the Midianite gods. So it's almost this climactic point in which now they're just full-blown breaking the covenant uh, with these other gods. However, this section does give some glimpses of hope. Here's just a couple we see in this section. We see some victories over some enemies in that Transjordan area, the area east of the Jordan. Um, We won't look at them too carefully now, but in chapter 21, we see that they have victory over the king of Arad. They also have victory over Sihon, the king of the Amorites, and Og, or Og, the king of Bashan. And the point seems to be to remind this second generation that the Lord is keeping some of his promises. Whenever you guys do go to battle, you're winning. And he actually points out that, I believe it was Og, that he was one of these giants. His bed was something like ten cubits long. And so he's making the point that, listen, you're already conquering people who are just like the ones in the land. So there's already like these, these down payments, this earnest on the Lord's faithfulness that should just be reminding them, just continue to trust him. He's proven himself trustworthy to you. In some ways, it's even kind of condescending to their unbelief. It's one thing to say, like, there's nothing you can see on which you can kind of base your confidence the Lord will keep his promises. That would be ideal. But no, you can't do that. So let me at least remind you of a few things that show that he is doing this, because maybe you'll at least base it upon some of the things you've observed. And then we also see uh, these oracles of Balaam. And I need to move quickly through this, because there's a lot we could say in these chapters. But look at chapters 22 to 24. Try to really quickly summarize this. You guys will remember this somewhat interesting story where um, Balak... The king of Moab, which is one of these areas where Israel is currently located, he sees Israel move into his territory, and they're numerous, and he's terrified. So he calls this prophet, um, Balaam, who's an interesting character, because he seems to prophesy in the name of the Lord, but yet he, he ultimately proves himself not to be faithful prophet of the Lord, but yet throughout this scene... He, he, for the most part, insists upon only saying what the Lord gives him to say. And specifically, not just any God, but Yahweh, the, the God of Israel, is the one he's prophesying on behalf of. And so Balak calls him to curse Israel. And Balaam essentially just keeps saying, i got to say what the Lord says, and the Lord only gives me blessings for them. And so he passes on these blessings. And of course, Balak gets furious with this, because he says, I called you to curse them, but you just keep blessing them. But in the midst of these blessings, there are these, we might call oracles, prophetic utterances that are interesting in what they tell us about um, Israel's future 
And in many ways, they aren't. They don't give us a whole lot more info, but they reaffirm God's promises to Abraham. Sometimes giving a little bit more detail, but largely just reaffirming what the Lord has already promised. For the sake of time, let me just note... Um, Let's just note, for the sake of time, the fourth one, the fourth oracle, which is in chapter 24, the end of chapter 24. And we'll start in chapter, or sorry, verse, um, verse 17. And actually, before we start reading verse 17, look at the verse that introduces it in verse 14. So we're in Numbers chapter 24, verse 14. And now, behold, I am going to my people... Come and I will advise you what this people will do to your people in the days to come. So Balaam saying, I'm going back to my people. I'm going to tell you what Israel will do to Moab in the days to come. Now, that phrase isn't necessarily a technical phrase, but it's only occurred one other time in Genesis 49, where Jacob blesses his sons and says what's going to happen to them in future days. And very interestingly, what we hear from Balaam actually builds on that. So what the Lord says within that context about these last days or these latter days with regard to Judah, this is what Jacob says in chapter 49 of Genesis, is this. Judah, your brother shall praise you, and your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's son shall bow down to you. Judah is a lion's whelp. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He couches. He lies down as a lion, and as a lion, who dares rouse him? The scepter shall not depart from Judah. So we've seen these promises of kings to Abraham, and now it's clarified that they're going to come through Judah. Continuing on, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until Shiloh comes, and to him shall be the obedience of all the peoples. So he's going to rule over all these peoples. And it continues on, but I'll stop there for the sake of time. So keeping that in mind, that's the last time we've heard about something prophetically being stated about what's going to happen in the last times. And here we see, see it again. And the themes are similar. So going back to verse 17, I see him now, but not near. I behold him. Sorry, I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. So it's, it's kind of reminding us that this isn't necessarily going to happen in this generation. It's going to happen a little bit further out. What is it that he sees? A star shall come forth from Jacob, which I don't know that star is totally surprising since Abraham has been promised descendants as numerous as the stars of heaven. He might be picking up on that metaphor. One of those, though, he sees coming forth. And then secondly, a scepter shall rise from Israel, so it seems like a king, and crush through the forehead of Moab and tear down all the sons of Sheth. Edom shall be a possession, Seir, its enemies, also will be a possession, while Israel performs valiantly. One from Jacob shall have dominion, and will destroy the remnant from the city. So essentially what we're seeing here is just affirming those promises to Abraham, that he's going to give kings, and these kings really seem in some of what they're doing here to align with that expected seed of the woman from Genesis 3.15 who will conquer the serpent and basically everything that embodies evil and has led to the whole corruption of the world and overcome that. And here we see one who's this king that's going to rise in the latter days and will accomplish that.
By the end of this section, though, just kind of zooming out now to, to wrap up this section, I started by saying it's about these obstacles to entering the land, but we begin to observe a shift in what we think the obstacles are. In chapters 13 to 14, the obstacles seem to be giants and well-fortified cities. But by the end, we have learned the real obstacle is unbelief, failure to trust the Lord. The giants weren't the problem. The well-fortified cities weren't the problem. Our own unbelief in God's promises is perennially the problem. And this serves as a warning for the new generation who still have to trust the Lord to enter into the land and fight the inhabitants. I'm realizing I, I messed you guys up in that handout with uh, the summaries. So, again, I repeated first under that summary the purpose of the whole book. And then there's first the summary of the previous section. And then kind of that last paragraph that begins with this section, 11 to 25, is referring just to the, the summary for this section. This section, 11 to 25, motivates Israel to trust the Lord to give them the land by both providing the bad example of the first generation in their unbelief, and the reminders of the Lord's commitment to his promises. So Moses just continually here has in view the second generation and wanting to encourage them. And then finally, the book ends in chapters 26 through 36 with preparations for entering the promised land. And it begins, this section, with a new, new census of this new generation. And look at the end of chapter 26. So we're in Numbers chapter 26. I'm just going to read for us here verses 63 through 65. These are those, this is referring to all those who were just numbered, these are those who were numbered by Moses and Eleazar the priest, who numbered the sons of Israel in the plains of Moab by the Jordan at Jericho. But among these, there was not a man of those who were numbered by Moses and Aaron the priest, who numbered the sons of Israel in the wilderness of Sinai. For the Lord had said of them, they shall surely die in the wilderness, and not a man was left of them except Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, and Joshua, the son of Nun. So the point is that the punishment of the first generation is over. It's been completed, and that means now this kind of period of waiting until they can enter the promised land is passed. Now that can resume, and they can enter the promised land. And then the rest of this section, from 27 through 36, deals with preparations for entering the promised land from various angles. And I try to summarize that there for you in that final summary. This section, chapters 26 to 36, explains that the punishment of the first generation is complete so that the second generation may proceed to take the land and provides additional instructions for taking and dwelling in the land. So there's numbers. We did well. We made it through that pretty quickly. Any questions before we move on? All right. Now for Deuteronomy. I was about to complain again that it's feeling warm in here. It seems to be recurring, but I think I heard the AC turn on. Does it sound like it's on? Yeah. Okay. We'll be patient then. All right. Deuteronomy. I'm not going to bother with the review again since we just kind of reviewed up to this point and just talked about the only intervening book. But the situation, Deuteronomy is basically a multi-part sermon given to Israel on the plains of Moab 
beside the Jordan River immediately before, that should say, Moses' death. Immediately before Moses' death. Like his last charge to Israel is what Deuteronomy is. And what's the purpose of the book? It is to instruct and exhort Israel to take and maintain possession of the promised land by trusting obedience to the Lord as stipulated by the covenant, as laid out here in this book. And then the structure, uh, there are various ways we could divide Deuteronomy. I've decided to break it up primarily by the speeches. Um, So there's eight parts here. First, the preface, um, which gives the historical setting for the book in the first five verses. And then the first real speech gives a historical view and uh, review and exhortation. The second speech gives the stipulations of the covenant. That's the longest part from the end of chapter 4 through the end of chapter 26. Speech 3 gives us instructions for writing the law on stones at Mount Ebal. Speech 4 is basically a command to obey the Lord as his people, for Israel to obey the Lord as his people. Speech 5 lays out the blessings and curses in association with the covenant. Verse 6 is kind of like explaining the covenant creation proper. And then at the end, there's a variety of pieces I've subsumed under the heading there, epilogue. So let's jump in and start working through these. So like I said, the book opens with a brief historical review um, in verses 1 to 5, and then it jumps into, uh, I guess you say, historical setting, and then we jump into speech 1 with the historical review and exhortation. So the historical review basically goes all the way through the end of chapter Uh, Three and Moses reviews the last 40 years, focusing on the failure of the previous generation to trust the Lord and some evidences the Lord can be trusted, that he's faithful. And in many ways, he reviews, he summarizes a lot of those same things we just saw in numbers as giving hope, particularly the victories. And then even after they conquered the the peoples in Transjordan on the east of the Jordan, you'll remember that there were two and a half tribes who requested that they could just have some land here and settle down. You'll probably remember that Moses is a bit skeptical about their intentions. You know, are they, are they just intending to settle in here since we've already conquered these people? And they assure him, no, we'll settle our wives and children here, but we will be at the front of the pack as the rest of the tribes go across the river to conquer that land. And Moses agrees, okay, that's the case, then, then you can do that. So they settle. So the point is two and a half of the 12 tribes have already settled in land that the Lord's given them victory over. So again, this historical review is reviewing the ups and downs, the positives and the negatives to that history. And they both serve the function of encouraging and exhorting Israel to be bold, to trust the Lord, and to go in and take the land. Whether it's the negative examples being a reminder about what not to do, or whether it's all the examples, the evidences of the Lord's faithfulness, um, encouraging them, bolstering their confidence. So that's in basically chapters 1 through 3. Then in chapter 4, Moses kind of builds on that history with some exhortations. And it's almost like he hasn't even kind of gotten to giving the stipulations yet, but he's just appealing to them, hear me out and pay careful attention because this is your life. This is very important that you you pay attention to this covenant, to the stipulations. And then it concludes with some brief um, instructions for these cities for the manslayer, which... We'll skip over trying to explain uh, for now. 
And so to summarize that first speech, this section recounts Israel's journey toward the promised land with both its encouragements and disasters and concludes with a sober exhortation to keep and obey the statutes of the covenant which are about to be stated. And that's what we turn to next, the stipulations of the covenant. Speech number two. Now this speech might be thought of as the main sermon. There's a sequence, a multi-part series of sermons. Um, This is kind of the main one. And after a a little introduction to it at the end of chapter 4, in chapter 5, he opens with a reminder about the Ten Commandments given at Sinai. And just a little note here on terminology. For whatever reason, when we move towards the end of the Pentateuch, that mountain where they gathered and received this revelation begins to be called Horeb, H-O-R-E-B, rather than Sinai. Those are the very same places. For whatever reason, the way they refer to it changes toward the end of the Pentateuch. In Deuteronomy, consistently refers to it as Horeb. So when we read Horeb, just keep in mind that is um, Sinai. So he reminds them of the Ten Commandments given there. And then also that after the Ten Commandments were given from the mountain, the people were terrified to hear directly from the Lord. So they plead with Moses. This happens at the end of chapter or Exodus 20. Uh, they plead with Moses to please intercede for them. Like, don't make us do this. You go and get the instructions for us and bring it back to us. We, we'd prefer that arrangement. And so Moses agrees to that. And we find that in chapters 21 through 23 of Exodus, we had the book of the covenant, which really is a lot more of these instructions. But apparently we learn here that there were even more instructions he received that he hadn't yet given to them. Um, Maybe in part because he was interrupted up there on the mountain because of their idolatry, having created the golden calf. Um, But we aren't really told why, but now he's giving them more instructions. And what he relays to them is in essential continuity with what they received at Sinai. Just more instructions already given that now he's passing on to them. And so he then spends the rest of this section, by that I mean through the end of chapter 11, um, providing, uh, he spends the rest of this section exhorting Israel to be careful to keep the covenant and really providing them motivations and incentives to obey. So this is where you'll remember instructions about, you know, like chapter 6, loving the Lord with all your heart, mind, and strength. Just all of these things that aren't necessarily laying out all of the rules, the stipulations, the commandments, but are appealing to them to keep these. And since I mentioned chapter 6, verse 5, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might, it's just helpful to note, coming from our perspective, New Testament perspective, church perspective, sometimes Old Testament law can, can, can get... The wrong pers- we can have the wrong perspective on it. It can seem like God's a bully just saying, do this, do this, do this, and if you don't, it's going to be bad for you. But what we see here in chapter 6, verse 5, is that this is really a part of a return to the garden and to an intimate and wonderful relationship with the Lord, which not only glorifies the Lord, but is good and joyful for man. So, Yes, the Lord's giving these instructions, but as he says, these are not unreasonable instructions, and they're for your good. Look at verse uh, 24 of chapter 6. So the Lord commanded us to observe all these statutes, to fear the Lord our God, for our good always, and for our survival, as it is this day. 
So just a little reminder coming from our perspective that the Lord does this out of love and really to restore this garden-like relationship, his, his relational presence among humans. And then after those just encouragements to heed and listen to all of these statutes, beginning in chapter 12 is where he really starts laying out all of the statutes. This is the portion where from a new covenant believer perspective, you probably get a bit weary in reading through this because it's just a lot of rules. But, as we keep noting, these are rules for their good. This is so that the Lord can dwell in their presence. So we're going to find in chapters 12 through 26 that you basically have what are summarized throughout this section as statutes and judgments. Statutes and judgments. And this is the core section containing the instructions for Israel. We won't go through it chapter by chapter, but it addresses things like chapter 12. When they enter the land and settle in various parts, they should have only one place of worship. And the book doesn't yet tell them where. We find out later that's Jerusalem. But they should have one place of worship and not be setting up little places of worship wherever they want throughout the land. Um, Chapter 13 tells the Israelites what to do with other Israelites who encourage worship of other gods. Chapter 14 explains the clean and unclean animals. Which ones are clean? Which ones are unclean? Chapter 15 explains the, the shimta, the um, every seven years needing to release debts and release slaves. So it explains that process. Chapter 16 gives instructions for the major annual feasts, like Passover and the Feast of Booths and the Feast of Weeks. And then chapter 16, 17, 18 give instructions for judges, for kings, for Levites, for prophets. Just all kinds of instructions for how they're going to need to function in the land. Um, In particular, though, let's take a look at chapter 17. Not that this one was stands out in its own context, but it is important as you move beyond Deuteronomy and you start seeing kings arise in Israel, particularly in the books of First and Second Kings, they're continually assessed by the instructions given for kings here in chapter 17. And the author of First and Second Kings doesn't often spell out the conclusions for you. He assumes you're reading the narrative through the lens of these instructions. He, he probably couldn't imagine a reader of his books who's not intimately familiar with the book of Deuteronomy. And so he doesn't have to connect the dots for you. He assumes that you're seeing that if I say Solomon had X number of wives, Solomon had this huge army, and Solomon had all of this gold and silver, you'll know exactly what to conclude about Solomon. So let's just take a brief look because this, understanding this section will help you to understand later books. So chapter 17 of Deuteronomy, it really is a brief section on what the Israelite king should be. Let's just read through this, verses 14 through 20. When you enter the land which the Lord your God gives you, and you possess it and live in it, and you say, I will set a king over me like all the nations who are around me, you shall surely set a king over you whom the Lord your God chooses. One from among your countrymen you shall set as king over yourselves. You may not put a foreigner over yourselves who is not your countrymen. Moreover, he shall not multiply horses for himself, nor shall he cause the people to return to Egypt to multiply horses, since the Lord has said to you, you shall never return again by that way. He shall not multiply wives for himself, or else his heart will turn away, nor shall he greatly increase silver and gold for himself. Now... 
It shall come about, now it's the positive side, when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself a copy of this law on a scroll in the presence of the Levitical priests. It shall be with him, and he shall read it all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by carefully observing all the words of this law and these statutes, that his heart may not be lifted up above his countrymen, and that he may not turn aside from the commandment to the right or the left, so that he and his sons may continue long in his kingdom in the midst of Israel. And the book of Kings regularly shows kings not doing this, but this is what's laid out for them. So, just to summarize this section from chapter 5 through chapter uh, 26, this section states the stipulations of the covenant that must be obeyed if Israel is to long enjoy the Lord's relational presence and blessings in the land. And now we move to a short speech, a short speech here in chapter 27 Instructions for writing the law on stones on Mount Ebal, which is only eight verses. Essentially, it tells us that after entering the land, Israel's to set up large stones on Mount Ebal, something they can write on. And they're to uh, cover them with lime so they can write on them, making it more white. And then they're to write out all the instructions of Deuteronomy on these large stones that have been covered with lime so they can write on them. And that's to serve as basically a testimony to the covenant between the Lord and Israel as a reminder. Here's the law. In a day when not everyone had their own Bibles, in fact, you notice with those instructions to the king that it's almost unique that he has his own copy of the law. The king alone seems to be the one who gets his own unique copy because he plays his vital role in leading the people in covenant faithfulness. But most people don't have that. So on this mountain, Mount Ebal, having it written on these stones here would serve as a regular reminder to them of what they've agreed to do. So just to summarize this brief section of, of eight verses, this section provides concrete steps for Israel to take to remind themselves of their covenant with the Lord and their obligations in that covenant. Next, speech number four. In the rest of chapter 27, actually this one's very short, it's actually only two verses, so not the rest of 27. Verses 9 and 10, we'll just read that, 27, 9 and 10. Then Moses and the Levitical priests spoke to all Israel, saying, Be silent and listen, O Israel. This day you have become a people for the Lord your God. You shall therefore, because you're his people, obey the Lord your God and do his commandments and statutes which I command you today. So essentially it's a summary of the covenant, similar to what we saw on Mount Sinai in Exodus chapter 19, where he says, I'm going to make you, you know, my treasured possession, um, even though I own all the nations, and you should do what I command you. So this section appeals to Israel to respond to the blessing of having been made the Lord's treasured people by obeying the Lord. Repeatedly in these sections, the Lord reminds them of what he has done for them and how he's holding out these blessings for them, and they just simply need to respond in trusting obedience, not as though the Lord's coming and saying, I'm a stranger to you, you don't know who I am, but just do what I tell you. In fact, it's, I think it's not simply our new covenant perspective that leads us to do that. For whatever reason, our wicked hearts are just wired to think of God as stingy and not quick to move toward us, 
not quick to be gracious, not quick to be merciful, but we just imagine that God is distant and removed from us and is quick to be upset with us and just quick to want to uh, hold things against us that we've done. And that's not the Lord at all. He, he delights. It's his business to move toward us as we, we struggle and we sin. And he loves to forgive. Yes, he requires repentance, but he, he loves to appeal to us. Even as a, a parent sees their children wandering and doesn't just say, well, enough with that child. No, they pursue the child out of concern for them. So the Lord pursues, uh, pursues us. So we constantly have to be remembered about his tenderheartedness, his love for his people. Then, the rest of chapter 27 and chapter 28 are the blessings and curses. So a list of the blessings Israel can expect for covenant obedience and the curses Israel can expect for covenant disobedience are given here. And note that we saw a similar sort of list in Leviticus 26, and there I noted for us the the connections between what those blessings are and what those curses are and God's purposes in creation. Do you guys remember that? So you would expect things like, and indeed you find here, that blessings will be things like um, a multitude of descendants and that your land will be fruitful, right? And that you'll actually possess the land and keep the land, which is like a return to the garden. So there's all of these punishments that came because of sin in Genesis chapter 3 that are being overturned as part of the blessings. The Lord will dwell in their presence and there's a variety of other blessings. And then the curses are just the opposite. Things like barrenness, futility in agriculture, and then ultimately culminating in exile, being removed from the land, just like Adam and Eve were exiled from the garden. So to summarize this section on blessings and curses, this section reminds Israel that obedience is absolutely necessary to enjoying the blessings of the Lord's relational presence and curses are the consequence for forsaking his instructions. I might just note that, so we'll come back to some of these themes, but the list of blessings is fairly brief. He moves through them quickly, and then when he gets to the curses, he just details them at length. And combined with other things we'll observe as we survey some of the themes in Deuteronomy, it seems to suggest that Moses is pretty pessimistic about where this is going to go with Israel. He kind of highlights the curses. It almost seems as though he's sort of expecting this is going to be the lot of Israel, at least in the near term. And with that, let's move on to the Deuteronomic covenant proper in chapters 29 and 30. So here we find what's really the core of the covenant made on the plains of Moab. Everything else is sort of like the stipulations that are a part of it, but here's really the the core of the covenant. And you'll remember that when we looked at Exodus, we talked about that term Mosaic Covenant. And I explained that in Exodus, I was going to use the the phrase Sinaitic Covenant, right? And the reason is because Mosaic Covenant is kind of an all-encompassing term that encompasses really two parts. One part made at Mount Sinai, which is recorded in the book of Exodus. And another part made 40 years later on the plains of Moab, which is recorded in the book of Deuteronomy. And so since we're slowly moving through this and not looking at it from a a distance, I said it's going to be most helpful to split those two out. So this is that other half of the Mosaic Covenant, which I'm here calling the Deuteronomic Covenant. Some people might call it the Covenant on the Plains of Moab. All the same thing. And essentially, in terms of what it entails, essentially, in its essence, it's the same as the Sinaitic Covenant. Namely, it administrates the Abrahamic Covenant, providing specific instructions 
for Israel if Israel is to inherit the promises of the Abrahamic covenant. And in Deuteronomy, the most prominent of those promises, that's confusing, the most prominent of the promises of the Abrahamic covenant that are promised to them are God being their people, sorry, God being their God and them being his people, that relationship, which is promised in the Abrahamic covenant, I believe that's Genesis 17, and then also land and descendants. Those come up repeatedly. In fact, um, some people summarize it with alliteration as geography and genealogy. This is just again and again throughout the book of Deuteronomy, you'll see those two themes come together. The, the promise of land and the promise of descendants are majorly in view in the book of Deuteronomy. But if it's largely in its essence the same as the covenant made at Mount Sinai, why another one? Why do we have another covenant here? So let's just take a moment to consider what is the relationship between these two covenants. First, let me just share with you some of the kind of, maybe call it the relevant data in answering that question. Look at Deuteronomy 29, verse 1. Deuteronomy 29, verse 1. This is looking forward to the covenant about to come. These are the words of the covenant which the Lord commanded Moses to make with the sons of Israel in the land of Moab besides the covenant which he made with them at Horeb or Mount Sinai. So clearly we need to treat it as a bit of a distinct covenant, right? That, that certainly forces us to see it as unique, not merely something like a renewal or a reiteration of it. Also, this covenant gives quite a lot of additional stipulations. And it just makes sense that if you, if you make an agreement and then you start adding more stipulations, well, you don't just start tacking on stipulations without them, the other party agreeing to it, right? And so it seems like that's part of it here. There's more stipulations being given, so they have to agree to it again. Also, we might just think, well, this is a subsequent generation. So maybe it's just that the generation that came out of, out of Egypt, they made the first one. Now we've got to make it with the second generation. Um, but that's not the case. We see in Genesis that God makes a covenant with Abraham, and he passes those same promises on to Isaac and then to Jacob. But he never has to remake a covenant with them. And even here in Deuteronomy, we see in verse 15 of chapter 29, that he's making this covenant both with those who stand here with us today in the presence of the Lord our God and with those who are not with us here today. And as you read on the context, the point seems to be future generations that he's making it with. So it's not simply that he has to make a new covenant because this is a new generation. Also, another part of the relevant data, subsequently, later in the Bible, it continually refers back to these two covenants, basically as one covenant. So it seems as though it's, they're viewed as being intimately related, so they can be referred to as a single covenant. So that's kind of some of the relevant things we have to keep in mind. And did I put there, do you guys have like a conclusion or a, a summary of how they, the two covenants relate? Good. So just to kind of try to bring all that data together, this covenant, this is the, the covenant in Deuteronomy, is both a recommitment of Israel to the covenant made at Sinai and an agreement to the additional stipulations given in Deuteronomy on the plains of Moab. And it is for these reasons a different covenant, but it is also unified with the Sinaitic covenant, and the rest of the Old Testament views them as one. You could think of them as, or you could think of Deuteronomy as like a codicil 
You know, a codicil is like an additional, an, an addendum to a will. You have a will, it's set, but then you, you, you add this additional piece to it. And that's sort of what Deuteronomy is. It's, it's a, a second agreement, but it's so closely unified that it's subsequently viewed as just being one agreement, one covenant. And then chapter 30, especially the first 10 verses, have, it's, it's really important, but I'm going to zoom out here with the last few minutes we have after we finish the rest of the book and just kind of pull together some themes here for you. So we'll cover that then. But summarizing this section, this section records the formal covenant, anticipates Israel's failure, but promises restoration if Israel repents. And now on to that last section, chapters 31 through 34 of the epilogue. This section just includes a variety of pieces that kind of bring the book to a conclusion. It includes things like Moses commissioning Joshua as his successor. Moses instructing Israel to read the law every seven years at the Feast of Weeks. Moses anticipating that Israel will rebel, and, compose, and he composes a song to serve as a testimony against Israel. In other words, teach them this song because it will explain to them what's coming and kind of give them orientation in the midst of their rebellion. Instructions for Moses' death. Um, Moses' blessing on Israel before his death, and then at the very end it records actually Moses' death. So to summarize this epilogue section, these last four chapters, they provide more instructions and exhortations for the next chapter, which I'm using metaphorically here, the next chapter in salvation history, one in which Joshua will replace Moses as the leader of Israel. All right, so that's the book of Deuteronomy, and we did well because we have a little bit of time to survey, cover some of these themes and pull them together. I'm just going to give you four of them, and I think you have them all there in your handout. First, the theme of pessimism about Israel's future faithfulness to keep the covenant. Pessimism about Israel's future faithfulness to keep the covenant. Look at Deuteronomy 4.25. So have your Bible out here, and let's just jump around to some of these texts. Deuteronomy 4.25 reads, When you become the father of children and children's children and have remained long in the land and act corruptly and make an idol in the form of anything and do that which is evil in the sight of the Lord your God so as to provoke him to anger, and it goes on, but just note that the language there is of when, not if. When you do these things. And then go toward the end of the book to chapter 31. Deuteronomy chapter 31, and we'll first start with verse 16. Deuteronomy 31, verse 16. The Lord said to Moses, Behold, you are about to lie down with your fathers, and this people will arise and play the harlot with the strange gods of the land into the midst of which they are going, and will forsake me, and break my covenant, which I have made with them. Pretty pessimistic, huh? Uh, then look at verse 20. For when I bring them into the land flowing with milk and honey, which I swore to their fathers, and they have eaten and are satisfied and become prosperous, then they will turn to other gods and serve them and spurn me and break my covenant. Then it shall come about when many evils and troubles have come upon them, that this song, the one he's going to teach them, will 
testify before them as a witness, for it shall not be forgotten from the lips of their descendants. For I know their intent, which they are developing today, before I have brought them into the land which I swore. And then verse 27 of that same chapter, he says, For I know your rebellion and your stubbornness. Behold, while I am still alive with you today, you have been rebellious against the Lord. How much more then after my death? And then verse 29, For I know that after my death you will act corruptly and turn from the way which I have commanded you, and evil will befall you in the latter days. For you will do that which is evil in the sight of the Lord, provoking him to anger with the work of your hands. So, it's clear that Israel will defy the instructions of the covenant and bring upon herself the curses. It's more than just a possibility. It seems to be an expectation. But these themes are somewhat tied together. So there's this pessimistic expectation for the future of Israel. But we see some of the reason, which is that Israel will not keep the covenant because the people lack a heart to obey. So go back to Deuteronomy chapter 5. And we'll see there in chapter 5, verse 29. Deuteronomy chapter 5, verse 29. And note as we read this, that this, this doesn't seem, in the way Moses says it, to be a present reality. It seems to be a wish. Something he wishes was the, sake, it was the case. Chapter 5, verse 29. Oh, that they, that is the people of Israel, had such a heart in them that they would fear me. Sorry, this is the, the Lord speaking that they would fear me and keep all my commandments always, that it may be well with them and with their sons forever. He's longing for that, but the implication is they don't have that kind of a heart. And now flip back toward the end to Deuteronomy 29, verse 4, where we read, Yet to this day, Moses speaking to Israel, to this day the Lord has not given you a heart to know, nor eyes to see, nor ears to hear. The Lord hasn't given them the heart they need to be able to obey. So the point is that simply having the commandments is not sufficient because the problem is the rebellion in the heart. And what's required is a change of heart. Moses can tell that Israel, at least in general, there are going to be some who will be faithful, but in general has not experienced God's heart-changing work, and therefore he can foresee the outcome. They won't be able to keep the covenant, and they will suffer the curses. Which then leads to kind of the, the threat of exile. Um, I'm going to skip over that one, because we're close to being out of time, so we get to the last one. But let me just read that summary there for you, the summary of the theme of threat of exile. It's helpful to see the threat of exile, which both connects to what happened to Adam and Eve in the garden, and also is what Moses teaches us to expect will happen to Israel. And if you remember the, the latter part of Israel's history, it's exactly what does happen. But then finally, there's this promise of return to the land when Israel repents. So first, let's look at Deuteronomy chapter 4. Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 29. Keep in mind, we just read a few minutes ago, verses 25 to 28, which had the threat of exile. So following on the heels of that, we read... Verse 29, but from there, that is from exile, you will seek the Lord your God, 
and you will find him if you search for him with all your heart and all your soul. When you are in distress and all these things, that includes the curses, have come upon you in the latter days, you will return to the Lord your God and listen to his voice. For the Lord your God is a compassionate God. He will not fail you, nor destroy you, nor forget the covenant with your forefathers, which he swore to them. And then one last text that supports this. Look at Deuteronomy chapter 30. So after talking about, again, kind of the exile that's expected, the curses that are expected for covenant disobedience, there's this very hopeful section here in Deuteronomy chapter 30. Beginning in verse 1, so it shall be when, notice again, not if, but when, so it shall be when all these things have come upon you, the blessing and the curse which I have set before you, and you call them to mind in all the nations where the Lord your God has banished you, and you return to the Lord your God, and you obey him with all your heart and soul according to all that I command you today, you and your sons, then... Then the Lord your God will restore you from captivity and have compassion on you and will gather you again from all the peoples where the Lord your God has scattered you. And then he just emphasizes it. If your outcasts are at the ends of the earth, even from there, the Lord your God will gather you and from there he will bring you back. The Lord your God will bring you into the land which your fathers possessed and you shall possess it and he will prosper you and multiply you even more than your fathers. Notice this crucial verse, verse 6. Moreover, the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your descendants. So he's going to give you a new heart. To love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, so that you may live. That's the critical thing. That's what they needed. Presently, they don't have. The Lord's going to give them then that's going to lead to the restoration. Because they'll then be able to keep the covenant. The Lord your God will inflict all these curses at that time when you're restored on your enemies and on those who hate you, who persecuted you. And you shall again obey the Lord and observe all his commandments which I command you today. Then the Lord your God will prosper you abundantly in all the work of your hand, in the offspring of your body, and in the offspring of your cattle, and in the produce of your ground. For the Lord will again rejoice over you for good, just as he rejoiced over your fathers, if you obey the Lord your God to keep his commandments and his statutes, which are written in the book of, this book of the law, if you turn to the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. So essentially, to summarize that theme, even though Israel will be exiled from the land, Israel will repent when in exile, when the Lord gives them new hearts, and he will then restore them to the land and bless them abundantly in the ways he promised. In so many ways, the Pentateuch is the Old Testament of the Old Testament. And we find that the, the historical books are just interpreting Israel's history through the lens of the Pentateuch. It becomes the interpretive lens. Events aren't always interpreted easily on their own. You have a framework which interprets it for you, and this becomes the framework for interpreting what happens in Israel's history. The prophets are, by and large, just reinforcing these things. They're saying, this is what's going to happen to you if you continue on this path, Israel. Not because that's some special revelation, though they did receive direct revelation from the Lord, but because that's exactly what was already told to them. They're just like preachers reminding them of what they should already know. But they often say, after exile, there will be this wonderful future for you. Well, where does that come from? Well, surely they're adding additional details as prophets, but in large measure, they're just expositing what's here in the Pentateuch. So this is very important for us to understand some of these details. All right.
Questions? Go ahead, Julian. Um, amendment. I think what I don't like about amendment is it suggests it's the very same thing that's being changed. Deuteronomy seems to suggest it's an additional one that's added to it. It's a distinct covenant. But that's so tightly kind of attached to it that it can be viewed together. Go ahead. In 36, when it says that he will circumcise their hearts and mm-hmm. love them with all their heart and their soul, does that ever happen? in the Old Testament or is this looking beyond that? Yeah, so as you go on there's actually prophesied a new covenant that will actually involve a giving of the Holy Spirit who will give you the ability to actually keep the Lord's instructions, which is why when Christ comes and the new covenant's inaugurated it's clearly a better covenant because we actually have the means to keep it so I would say that how exactly it's been fulfilled, if that's been fulfilled at all yet, is, is a difficult matter. Um, because clearly that's being spoken about Israel, right? But it seems like at some level it has been fulfilled, but at some level it hasn't, because Israel hasn't really fully inherited all those promises yet. Yep. But certainly not in the Old Testament did we ever see that really fulfilled. Yeah. So what was the purpose of God in creation? And his purpose was to fill his creation with his image bearers who would live in his relational presence and rule over creation on his behalf, right? And that was all messed up because of Israel, sorry, not Israel, Adam and Eve insisting upon not trusting what the Lord had said is good and right, but deciding for themselves, eating of the tree of knowledge, and that's what started it all. And we see that same pattern continue again and again, not trusting what the Lord has said and insisting upon doing things our own way. And the, the punishment was basically directly contrary to what God had intended. But then God traces that line of the seed of the woman to Abraham where he gives promises that kind of reaffirm his purposes in creation, right? And overcome the curses, the, the punishments from the fall. And we see really the rest of the Pentateuch as an outworking of those promises. Essentially, those promises to Abraham are that he will bless Abraham and his descendants, and through blessing them, he will bless all nations. But of course, we have this expectation of this singular descendant of Abraham who will come and will crush the, the wickedness, the evil, deal with that, um, and in that way, be able to open the door for God to restore his purposes in creation and complete his purposes in creation. So, I know this has been like a whirlwind travel through the Pentateuch, but at the very least, I hope in our, what well, should have been six weeks, but became five weeks, um, we've at least seen kind of those opening chapters of the meta narrative of Scripture. Hopefully, have a bit more of a, an orientation, a framework. So we return to the Bible and read it to see how the pieces fit in there and have some understanding of the overall purpose and structure of each book. There's obviously all kinds of details we can never cover in this short of a period of time, but hopefully we at least got some measure of orientation. All right, any concluding questions? All right, let me pray for us. Lord, we do thank you for helping us to to make it through this. I thank you for um, both helping me, but also helping... um, these dear people to to stay awake and to stay alert um, as we move so quickly through all of this. 
Uh, we do thank you just for this body and for your work. And even as we've just been reminded, looking forward, we thank you that uh, that seed of the woman who will conquer evil and will restore your purposes uh, has come. And he has inaugurated a new and better covenant that does give us circumcised hearts um, through the Spirit, giving us regeneration. And we're able to participate in those promises um, even as Gentiles who are being blessed through the seed of Abraham. And so we thank you for those things. May we uh, just continue to allow your word and the, the salvation history it, it gives us, it tells us to be the interpretive framework for our lives. And we pray, Lord, that Christ would come back soon and consummate all of your purposes. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.